Hi everyone. First off, we at The Feminist Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's Schools of Culture, History and Language, and of Archaeology and Anthropology, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with my fellow familiar strangers, Ian Pollock, Julia Brown, Saeed Levy BC. Said is sitting in for us while Jody, who is still in South America, cannot be with us. So Jody, wherever you are, hope you're having fun. I think she's breathing some very thin air in the high Andes right now. Well, that sounds like fun. And Said, thank you for coming on and being with us in lieu of Jody. Said has a master's degree in philosophy and social anthropology from the Jawaharlal Nehru University of New Delhi. Great. So today we are going to start with Mr. Ian Pollock. Ian, what have you been thinking about this week? I've been thinking about thesis writing, of course. Uh, you know, three out of the four of us are writing our thesis at the moment. Say you just you're just in your first year, PhD, but you've got this to look forward to because it's a horrible slog and it's really difficult. And I guess what I've been thinking about is the kind of level of quality that a thesis needs to be brought to. Because like, what kind of genre of writing does a thesis fall into? The best. Your thesis, perhaps? <laughs> uh, as for myself, I mean, some people have said that to me, that it should be the best, that you should... What, what I was told by one of my supervisors was that you should write your thesis as if you're already writing the book that you will presumably want to turn your thesis into after you graduate. Others have said to me that it's a pass-fail exercise, right? You just got to get it just good enough to get over the bar because it's only actually going to be read by like three people, your supervisor and the couple of people who mark it. As anthropologists, basically what we do is write. That's like a big part of the actual practice of being an anthropologist is sitting at your desk and writing stuff, whether it's writing your field notes or whether it's writing up your articles or your dissertation that you use to present your findings. And most of us have never actually been trained in how to write. We get given the same kind of truisms that everybody gets no matter what kind of writing you're supposed to do, like write every day and read a lot. And none of it is that specific and none of it is really that helpful. And for those of us who are not naturally gifted writers, and I'm not a naturally gifted writer, getting up to a really high level of quality is just incredibly difficult and time consuming. And given that we're all on kind of a, a leash, we're on a time limit, I was just wondering how important it is to you guys to really bring your thesis up to some like high literary level of quality or whether you just be satisfied with it just being good enough. And I'm also curious if you have like ethnographic writers who really inspire you or people who people who you want to emulate. Who is your hero? The truth is that I've limited so much of my ethnographic reading to Southeastern Indonesia. And this Thank is something that you've criticized failure. me. Simon has really criticized <laughs> me about for this. I've read very, very deeply on quite narrow subjects. And so my favorite writers are people who've written about that. And it's not to say they're necessarily the most amazing writers in the world, but I just enjoy the stories that they tell for the content that's in them. But I'll be honest, like I don't have a lot of models far outside of that geographic area. I'm not sure you need to have a specific model. I think that the more you read, the more you realize how much diversity there is in ethnography. Like, for example, when I first got back from the field, I read 
an ethnography by Lisa Stevenson called Life Beside Itself. It's about suicide amongst Inuit youth in the Canadian Arctic. And that's not directly relevant to my thesis, but the way she communicated these ideas just, I don't know, it it opened up something. Like it, it sort of freed me from worrying about emulating a specific style. I just remember reading that particular ethnography and thinking, gosh, there are so many ways of articulating the human condition and our field experiences that what we do will be good enough as so long as it's true to us. And with any luck, it might resonate with someone else one day. What about you, Syed? Anyone? I haven't uh, read much ethnographies, but uh, I was wondering whether we can make a distinction between style and structure. For example, if we read more ethnographies written in different contexts, we can emulate its structure in the sense that you begin by placing yourself in the field and then describing its socioeconomic conditions, kinship structures, and so on and so on. But there is a difference in terms of language, whether you want to emulate their language structure, language style. So I think I would personally make a distinction between style and structure. Yeah, that's a good point. And I sort of wish that sometimes that we had a more concrete single given structure that we were all supposed to follow like scientists do in their academic writing. It's what you've got your introduction and then you've got your method and then you've got your findings and then you've got your analysis and then you're done. And for us, it's kind of all over the shop. You read one ethnography and it starts with a long disquisition about the person's individual feelings, the writer's individual feelings. And you read another one and it starts with like people in like land and people chapter. And it can be bewildering to know how to start. A thesis, which is, I thought, as a genre of writing, something that could be structured in some kind of classic sort of best practice way. My favorite ethnographies are definitely the ones that start with, these people have this many children, have this religion. (laughs) (laughs) That's always my, my favorite classic. So, Julia, what are you thinking about this week? I've been thinking about cults and what we mean by the concept of cults. This came to my attention recently when I was watching Wild Wild Country on Netflix. I won't spoil it for those of you that haven't watched it. I really recommend it. Fascinating documentary about Osho's movement in the 1980s in Oregon, in America. And then I was reading this thing in the news this morning about an Australian so-called cult called Universal Medicine, which is a holistic healing community they are resisting the term cult because they have a very diverse membership. I'm just thinking about how it is that we come to define something as a cult. Does this popular discourse of cult have anything to do with what scholars might otherwise explore in those communities? For me, the issue with using the term cult is that there's a kind of popular discourse about what a cult is and there's this academic discourse about what we call new religious movements. And there's a kind of like a negative kind of imaginary that a cult may be violent or there's often sex involved, whereas what people who work in religious studies or who work in the anthropology of new religious movements talk about is usually the notion that what we call cults in popular discourse are almost completely similar to the early histories of any of the major religions around the world. So there's no kind of point of identifiable difference between the origin of... Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, etc. 
to what we see now in these things that are called cults, which are really just contemporary religious movements. So new religious movements aside, and that being the kind of academic discourse of things, there is a public discourse about a cult and an, an image that comes to mind, right? I mean, like of, of a, a bunch of people maybe wearing all the same clothes who live in a big house and a, a charismatic leader. It seems in, in one sense like this public idea of a cult has to do with subversion, right? It has to do with subversion of things that might be considered kind of outre or, or taboo in mainstream religious movements or in other kind of mainstream moral discourses. But then given the, given the kind of cloaking or the kind of appearance of a religion or an institution with a moral foundation. Also, I think also important to the idea of cult is a bounded community in a sense. All these people, for example, in the case of Osho, they were living in Oregon and they were they were identified using their sartorial practices or other ritual practices. But in the case of um, Australia's uh, the so-called cult movement that Julia talked about, these things do not seem to be exist. Okay, so we can rule out that universal medicine is not a cult. Well, could you just say a little bit more about it? Well, look, I, I don't really know much other than it's a holistic healing community and it has very dedicated members and it's an alternative. It's got that kind of contrarian streak, which I think also defines popular imagery of what a cult is, so something different from the norm. So we can understand why it would still be categorised that way, but perhaps because as far as I am aware, they're not all living together. So is it that proximity of the bounded community, as you were saying, Sayed, that really is where we literally draw the line? But as, as you rightly began, it is in the popular discourse that there is this identification of these groups as being cults but they do not themselves identify as cult. I guess it's all, no one, well, no, sorry, delete that comment. Okay, <laughs> take that as a, as a, yep, we'll see what we can do, do with think, that. Yeah. Right. Um, Said, what are you thinking about this week? I was thinking of social hierarchy in the context of Indian subcontinent, but before beginning, I would like to pay my tributes to Justice Rajendra Sachar, who passed away on 20th April this year. In 2006, a committee under his leadership submitted a report to the government of India, which identified gross social inequalities among Muslims in India. And he estimated that some of the social groups among Muslims had socio-economic disadvantages worse than former untouchable castes who identify themselves as Dalits today. Following these reports, there have been a lot of demands by social groups among Muslims to be identified as castes similar to Hindus and therefore to be recognized for positive discrimination. So, but in the case of Muslims, in the context of India, most majority of Muslims claim that their religion is egalitarian. So any claim of having hierarchy or socio-economic disadvantages based on hereditary relationships actually contests their idea of egalitarian religion. So this is the dilemma that I have been grappling with. And this is the subject of your PhD research? Yeah, yeah, as well. So let's walk it back a bit. In India, caste and the caste system is normally associated with Hinduism. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so what's, I mean, it's, it's quite varied and complex, but in a nutshell, there are what, four castes? Yeah. The foundation of caste is understood to be Varna hierarchy, which categorizes Hindu social groups into mainly four, but actually five. 
So it's a kind of a pyramidal structure in which at the top are placed Brahmins. The second comes the Kshatriyas who are warriors. The Brahmins are priests. The third comes Vaishyas who are business class. The fourth comes Shudras who are service class. Then there is a vast group of population who are identified as outside castes who were called outcasts but today identify themselves as Dalits politically. And so historically, Islam in India has what presented a discourse of egalitarianism, that it doesn't participate in the same kind of caste structures that Hinduism does. Is that right? Yeah, but scholars working on uh, social hierarchy among Muslims in India, like Imtiaz Ahmad, then T.N. Madan, Vinod Jairath, C.J. Fuller, all have even demand for that matter, have argued that the social hierarchy of Hindus has actually affected other communities, not just Muslims, but Christians, Sikhs, Buddhists. So caste has been identified as a kind of a pan-Indian phenomenon. So in Indonesia, Islam there in a lot of places has adopted a character that people describe as Islam Nusantara or like archipelago, island Islam. Under that sort of system, there's an idea that it is acceptable or normal for Islam to adopt certain local characteristics or to come into accordance with traditional culture. At the same time, there's a strong sort of conservative streak coming into Islam in Indonesia right now. People in the country often describe it as Arabization, but a feeling that it's not appropriate to have variations on Islam, that in fact they should all be trying to become perfect Muslims or to practice Islam more the way that it's practiced in the Arabian Peninsula. Is there a discourse in India that there is such a thing as Indian Islam where it might be appropriate to have castes and a countervailing discourse of like more Arab or pure Islam that's more egalitarian or doesn't have caste? The dominant discourse has in fact been there is only a single Islam towards which Muslims move over time or gradually. So this idea of a scriptural Islam as the ideal Islam and then the local elements like caste existing beyond those boundaries, then Muslims from their cultural backgrounds move to that scriptural Islam. But I was just wondering what Simon would say in the context of Iran, where this Islam coming to a different cultural context does not exist. I mean, Islam, Iran rather, doesn't have a caste system in the way that it exists in India. But there's been like a long tension in Iranian history about how Iran's pre-Islamic history meets its post-Islamic history, when Islam became the dominant religion of the country. And a lot of Iranians think those two things can't be mixed, that that they are kind of irrevocably separate. A lot of Iranians don't. A lot of Iranians feel comfortable with an identity that is both Islamic and Iranian and incorporates things like Noruz, that new year, uh, into their understanding of Islam. But it's certainly a kind of a point of contention when Iranians go elsewhere around the world, as, I mean, the Iranians are Shiites mostly, And people often say that Shiism in Iran is some kind of Persianized Islam that has taken away from the true Islam, which is Sunni from Saudi Arabia, etc. And I think for a a lot of Iranians, it's it's a kind of very unpalatable discourse because they feel themselves to, in some ways, to have helped Islam reach its full potential, its full capacity through Persian culture. But that doesn't seem to be what's happened in India. People seem to be uncomfortable with the notion of Islam having mixed with Hinduism or or pre-existing non-Islamic culture in India. Because 
we have to keep going on. I'm going to be really awkward and cut you off. I'm sorry. Um, and I'm going to talk about how I was bored in the field. Some of you might have read my blog post a couple of weeks ago, one or two weeks ago, where I spoke about the notion of boredom and whether it was appropriate to be bored. When, you, when one's doing field work, I got quite a lot of feedback from that. People said different things. Some people said they were never bored. Some people said that, like, <laughs> that boredom was constitutive of their field work experience. But one of the things that got me thinking about was how different the field site actually is. I mean, part of anthropology, right, is that we have a field site. And that, as we know from speaking to someone like Steph, who came on the program earlier this year, that can be a digital space. But I think there's a lot of variety in the way we understand field work and what the field site itself is. And it's been discussed at length in anthropology. And yet certainly it was my experience when I started doing my PhD that the kind of model of the, the Indonesian village was still something that was largely kind of what everyone understood field work to be like. So if you weren't having the experiences of the, of the kind of busy, constantly socialized Indonesian village, I, I often worry that I wasn't doing field work properly. Well, I never had that expectation because I uh, was studying a culture within my own culture. But I think in a way to feel like you're not swarmed by data and people is quite useful because you can be that fly on the wall a little bit more. And I noticed when I did have quieter moments during field work, I did feel like it was quite special to be able to just sit without feeling like my presence was noticed because then I could really try and blend in and get more of a naturalistic observation happening. My, my field site was like really archetypal in a lot of ways. I lived in a small village. I wasn't like living in the home of a family. I had my own place, but uh, I was living in a small village. Uh, but there was a lot that was like really classic about that kind of situation. One thing I certainly never had was the ability to blend in. Wherever I went as a foreigner, uh, I was an object of attention and of special treatment. And sometimes that's that's to the detriment of certain kinds of observation. So for instance, you get invited to a huge ceremony and you have to go because people really, really want you to go because it means a lot to them, to their social standing, to be seen with the foreigner. And so even if you had something else you wanted to do that day, you got to go along to the ceremony. You're not given that freedom. To be honest, what's going on in the like official carrying out of the ceremony is often way more boring than the everyday chit-chat going on in the kitchen behind the house that you're not really permitted to go and enjoy. See, I think that was, that was in some ways what I was trying to, trying to get at with the blog is I think in some ways that boredom in the field can actually be informative. And I, I mean, I, I'd be interested to know what you feel, Julia, because I wasn't just bored when I wasn't doing field work. I was sometimes bored when I was doing field work, when I was, you know, in the middle of some ritual event. And I, re I remember this great time where I was invited, invited to someone's pre-wedding ceremony. And we split up, women went upstairs, men went downstairs. And so I sat in a room of about 20 people, 30, 40 people maybe even. And we just sat there waiting for the polite chit-chat to kind of end, waiting for the food to be distributed. No one talked very much. Everyone looked really kind of sullen and everyone was just waiting for the sheikh to leave. But upstairs, we could hear the women dancing, having the times of their life. Clearly, like everyone was laughing and so on. And at the end, when I left, I said to my, my partner who came with me, she, I said, did you have a good time? And she said, we had a fantastic time. And so I said to the guy I went with, 
why was that so boring? And he says, this is, you know, this is the kind of the cross that men have to bear. Men have to sit through boring rituals while women get to have fun. How did you turn that into constructive fill data? I just, turn, I just tell it as a funny anecdote. <laughs> so it's just a field it. note that will never make it anywhere else other than what it was. Because I, I see that as really a great opportunity to observe those gender differences in experience. And the fact that your male participants were also experiencing boredom, I mean, that's quite affirming, isn't it? Like you're experiencing what they are and so you can... Yeah, I think there's a whole story. I mean, I think this is what I'm trying to get at, right? That, that boredom can be a learning opportunity. It, it is potential in and of itself a, a moment to further understand the culture. But that doesn't mean that people don't get bored, though. I mean, they certainly do get bored. I mean, Saeed, do you have expectations of being bored? I was actually wondering, listening to you about Kirin Narayan's article on Swamiji in Gujarat. So she was, though she was not using the term boredom, but I was, I think boredom also arises out of being out of place in a locality. For her, she was, she writes that she had a lot of connections with uh, Gujarat. So she felt at home and she felt like a local at some times. Then during her menstrual period, she was not allowed to contact other people and do her field work. So she had to just out of being being out of place, she just left the whole village and went somewhere else just to relax and then come back. Maybe it gives you time to really think about the other things you've been observing. Like I quite liked having quieter time during field work so I could kind of catch up with what had been happening. Do you know what I mean? It gave me a chance to process things. Whereas if I'd been constantly stimulated, I just would not have ever been able to kind of go back to the chase up on things that I wanted to chase up on. I do agree that immersive fieldwork is very thick, right? And there's a thickness of description, a thickness of perception that you really try to bring to it with your whole body and your senses and your mind as the analytical instrument, right? It requires downtime to process. Sometimes that downtime means watching television. Sometimes it does. <laughs> and sometimes, but there are, there are also times when you'd rather be doing other things. There are times when I would be stuck at home wishing I had some event to go to or some interview to do, and I just hadn't managed to arrange one. And it may, or maybe it's raining outside and like, oh, I'm not going anywhere on a motorbike today. I guess I will stay here and have another cup of tea. <laughs> Sorry, we have to cut this short. Uh, we would love you to continue to contribute to the stories that we're telling on this show and to the debates that we're having. Please reach out to us at TFS Tweets or on Facebook or on the website itself. Thank you, Ian Pollock. Thank you. Thank you, Julia Brown. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, Saeed Delevy. Thank you. And I'm your host, Simon Theobald. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. You can subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. Find a link to his EP in the show notes. Special thanks as always to Julia Miller, Bill Grant, Nick Trembath, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.